Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Man Talks podcast. My name is Roger Nairn. Uh, Connor Beaton is traveling down throughout, throughout the United States and Canada visiting our Man Talks communities, but he's going to be back on a very soon episode of the Man Talks podcast. Stories move us, they engage us, they inspire us. Stories give us an example of how to act and how not to act. The best ones stay with us forever. Today's guest, Paul Smith, teaches you how you can use stories in business, in family life, and as a leader to help motivate, drive sales, and get a point across with one of your uh, family members, especially your children. So, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Paul Smith. Hi, Paul. Thanks so much for joining me on the Mad Talks podcast. Oh, you're very welcome, Roger. It's great to be here. Awesome. Uh, before we get started, we always love to ask our guests if they can share with us, uh, what is the defining moment for you? Yeah. yeah. So uh, for me, it would be the moment that got me to be where I am today, which uh, which was rather difficult for, because I, I spent most of my career in a pretty typical corporate career path and found myself 20 years into a career at Procter & Gamble um, but before I left. But that moment for me was deciding to leave still in my mid forties and too young to retire and all that kind of stuff to go be a full-time author and speaker and trainer, uh, which is what I knew I, I wanted to do and would love to do. But, uh, you know, when you got a couple of kids to put through college and you're, you know, too young to retire and all that, it's a difficult decision. And so, uh, that, that defining moment for me was a conversation with my dad that, that gave me the courage to actually walk away and, uh, and pursue my dreams, uh, which, which just happened about three years ago. Very cool. Congratulations. And how has it been so far? Oh, absolutely. Best decision I ever made. Um, so uh, at least so far, I suppose that could all come crumbling down tomorrow. But uh, but like most defining moments, I wouldn't regret it if that did happen. Uh, I think I would more regret not having made this decision and wishing that I had. Mm. So uh, uh, but so far, it's been great. That's a great lesson for a lot of the guys out there because I, I know that there's a lot of people that are in that exact same position right now where they're almost ready to to take the leap. Um, do you have any Do you have any advice for that sort of first step? Because I'm sure it's going to be absolutely frightening for a lot of people. Yeah, well, for me, it was just generating the courage to do it, and and quite literally, it was a, a letter from my dad that that got me there. He 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 told me a story in this letter about himself as a five year old kid. That uh, that really just did it for me. And I'll I'll just I'll share that with you. He he said uh, he said you know when I was five years old I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life. He said I wanted to be a singer. You know like Frank Sinatra, or Tony Bennett, or you know or Sammy Davis Jr. Right? He's he's in his eighties, so that was kind of his genre. And and he said and I knew that the first day of the first grade, um, the teacher asked if any of us had any special talent. And he said I raised my hand and I said I'm a singer. Well, what do you, what do you think the teacher did when he said that? Probably said uh, you're crazy. Well, okay. Well, what she said was, well, get up and sing us a song, Bobby. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, so little five-year-old Bobby stood up and he said, I belted out my favorite song right there in front of the teacher and everybody, right? Acapella, right? And he said, I nailed it, right? I got all the words and all the melody right. And I was so proud of myself. And the, in fact, the teacher and the other students stood up and they applauded me. He said, my first standing ovation, the first time I ever sing in front of an audience, I get a standing ovation. He said, that's the moment I knew. This is what I want to do with my life. And he said, he went on to say, that turned out not just to be the first time in my life that I ever sang in front of an audience. It turned out to be the last time mm. I ever sang in front of an audience. And he said, son, that, you know, that was 75 years ago. And not a month goes by that I don't regret that decision. He said, the truth is I just never had the courage to pursue it. And he said, someday you're going to wake up like me, you're going to be 80 years old, and it's going to be too late to pursue your dream. 
you know, and, and, and he literally closed the, this letter by saying, you know, I'd love to see you achieve your dream, but that doesn't mean in your lifetime, son, that means in mine. And mm. holy cow, like, you know, 80, he was 80 years old. So TikTok, right? So, uh, I quite literally two days later walked into my boss's office and I resigned from my, my 20 year career to do this wow. for a living. And I absolutely needed that kick in the pants to do it. I absolutely love that story and appreciate that story. And, and it's actually storytelling that we're here to, to you know, we're, we're here to talk about today. You're an expert when it comes to storytelling. And, and I'm wondering if you can kind of share with the audience what that means and sort of what that looks like for you and, and your, um, your audience and, and your, uh, your sort of your clients. Yeah, well, so what, what I do professionally, you know, well, I spend most of my time researching and writing whatever the next book is that I'm working on. But when I'm not doing that, I'm usually on stage, uh, either doing a keynote or more likely in a small conference room, teaching leaders and executives and salespeople, et cetera, how to use storytelling to make them more effective at their job, whether that's a leader or a parent at home or a salesperson on the road or uh, or whatever. And I've just, I've, I've found that storytelling is, it can be such an effective tool at, at shaping people's opinions and, and inspiring and motivating them and leading them. They can just be applied to just about any area of life. And I, I think you, the main, you like to, you like to say that stories help shape who we are and who we aspire to become. And, and I love that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it does. And, and I think the reason behind that is that, uh, there's been a lot of cognitive science, you know, research that's been done on how people think and how they make their decisions. And, and largely what they've concluded is that human beings don't make rational, logical decisions. Uh, we, we make subconscious emotional decisions, uh, sometimes irrational ones in one place in our brain. And then we, we logically justify those and rationalize them a few nanoseconds later in some other place in our brain. And so if you want to influence people's decisions and thinking and opinions and behavior, you know, in other words, leadership or, or parenting or sales, it turns out you need to influence them emotionally and subconsciously. And, and the, the, the best way to do that is with a story, you know, the logic and rational thought and, and, and facts and data will only take you so far. You know, I'm not suggesting you get rid of those things at all. Uh, but if you're not augmenting that with stories to help people emotionally process the facts and help them reach a conclusion, then you're, you're, you're not doing as well as you could be. You know, one of the things you just said that, you know, that people process via, uh, or, or react via emotions first and then, and then sort of, um, post-rationalize things. That's, that's something that's, you know, fairly new within the last sort of decade in, in the, in the marketing world. And, and I come from the marketing world and, and it sounds like you do as well with, with Procter and Gamble. And I'm assuming, you know, you were deeply involved in consumer packaged goods and, you know, Daniel Kahneman's come out with his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. There's this whole idea of needing to make a connection via the emotional. Walk us through what a what a story does specifically, uh, you know, in in that aspect. Because uh, to a lot of people, a story is just something that you kind of throw in for entertainment's sake. Right. Um, but but it's doing much more. Yeah, it is. In fact, I, I, so what I advocate in the the book and in my my courses is that you you think about the stories that you're going to tell just as intentionally as you think about the facts and data and arguments that you're going to use. Right. It, it shouldn't be any different. So don't just use stories as some warm-up exercise or an icebreaker or a throwaway set of comments or some sideline entertainment activity. Uh, they should be a conscious part of whether it's a, if it's a speech you're giving to the organization or if it's a sales pitch or if it's a, you know, part, part of your marketing campaign. Um, it, it should be a very conscious part of it. 
Um, and, and in fact, I advocate that you, you need to have a repertoire of stories in your either mental or physical database to draw upon at when the moment calls for it. Because if you don't, the, the worst time to tell a story is when you don't have a good story to tell. Because <laughs> right. <laughs> right? then we all gonna, know that we all know those people. Yes. They just kind of they kind of piece it together in their head and stumble through it. And right. Yeah, it's yeah, or it's it, totally inappropriate. <laughs> right. Yeah. For all, so it was the wrong story to tell, and it was told poorly because they'd never really thought about it before. So one thing is have the right stories to tell. So have a database of stories to tell. But then secondly, uh, knowing how to craft a story is important and and stories have a definite structure to them. And that structure is different than the structure of a well-written memo or an email or even the structure of a presentation. I mean, all of those things were were taught early in our business careers, even back in school, that you you put all the important stuff up front. Like, what's your recommendation? Put it right up front. In fact, it should be in the subject line of your memo or the subject line of the email. I recommend we proceed with Project ABC or whatever. You know, and then lay out in a very logical fashion all the reasons behind that and the supporting documentation for it. That's a normal structure of a presentation or a memo. That is not the structure of a story, right? It's very, can, and it's very rational. Yeah. Well, it's not just, and it's not just that it's rational versus emotional. The entire structure of it is backwards, right? Like, what would you think about the original Star Wars movie if you found out in the first five minutes? that Luke Skywalker, that, that Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's dad and that Princess Leia was his sister. And yeah, I mean, it would totally ruin the story. Save right? me 25 bucks. Yeah, it might. Yeah. Like you don't want to find out uh, the end of the story at the beginning. It, it ruins the story. So, so stories have a very different structure. It's context at the beginning. All the action is in the middle. The resolution is at the end, which means the end is at the end. The end isn't at the, at, at, at in the beginning and the end isn't at the beginning and in the middle. It's where it belongs. And, and the lessons that you learn from a story happen after the story, not before. So you don't tell somebody, I'm going to teach you a lesson about this and here's the story. And then, well, no, you tell them the story and let them learn the lesson from it. You know, so it starts with structure, right? So it's context at the beginning, action, uh, you know, that's where all the the challenge and the conflict and the struggle is. And then the, the resolution is at the end. But there's also other things like the, the emotional components of the story and the element of surprise is a very important component, as you know, in movies and novels. Well, it's important in business stories as well, but not just because it's entertaining. You know, that surprise plays a very practical role in business stories because it helps you remember the lesson in the story, that the surprise literally triggers a release of adrenaline in your system that makes uh, the story more memorable. And so, and your, your memos aren't very memorable because there's nothing surprising in them, but a story can have a surprise and it will make it more memorable. So those are some of the elements that you, you're going to want to pay attention to. So you said that we should have a repertoire of, of stories. You, you know, if we're, if we're just sort of, you know, starting with a few, are, are, should we be practicing them? Should we be trying out different versions? Uh, what's the best way to solidify your repertoire of stories? Yeah. So the most important thing is just to have a large and growing repertoire. Yes, I do think that you should practice them, um, but, but practice comes at the end. So, so I think the order of this is step one, recognize that you need to be telling more stories. Step two, what stories do you need? So if you're a leader, 
You need stories to do things that leaders do, like set a vision for the future or build commitment to goals or lead change or define the culture and the values of the organization or get people to collaborate better together or inspire and motivate the team or give coaching and feedback. I mean, all the things that leaders do, you probably could use storytelling for each of them to accomplish your goal better. So so that's step one or step two. So one, recognize you need them. Two, recognize which ones you need. Okay, once you've recognized which ones you need, go find them. I mean, literally go on a story hunt or at least have your brain open when you hear a good story or see something interesting happen that could make for a good story. Think to yourself, oh, that made this kind of an impact on me and taught me this lesson. I'll save that in my brain and I'll use it the next time I see somebody who needs that lesson, right? So then once you've done that, now you're ready to start like crafting the stories a little smarter, you know, and, and use the right story structure with a hook at the beginning and the that context action result in the middle and the lesson at the end. And, um, and, and if you, if you read through my books, you can learn how to use the emotional components, right. And the element of surprise and the, the right dialogue and details and, and how long should they be? Should I tell a long story or a short story? Well, the answer there, by the way, is leadership stories should be about three or four minutes long and sales stories need to be about two minutes long. I mean, so you know, there, there are some specifics, but, but we're now to step four or five, right. Um, and, and then at the end of that is practice, right. Which you asked about. So, but you don't practice after you've done all those other things, right? If you wanted to learn to play the piano, would you just sit down and start practicing? Right. Of course not, right? You'd go hire a tutor. <laughs> You'd go learn how to play the piano first and then practice. And that's the mistake people make with, with storytelling. They think it's just something that you're either born with or you'll never have. Uh, but if you want to get better at it, you should just practice more. Well, but you're practicing the wrong techniques. You don't use, so, so go learn first, go get, you know, go get some stories, learn how to craft them, and then practice. So your very first book was called Lead by the Story, and, and it's also a podcast as well. I'm wondering if you can give, give me some examples of situations where you've used uh, storytelling in a leadership capacity. Yeah, so, um, so one of my favorite stories actually comes from a colleague of mine named Jason Zoller, and he's a, a consumer research vice president at a big consumer products company. Um, and one of the, and I, I like to share one of his stories, which is actually about when he was in college, uh, his professor told the class a story so compelling that he's been using it every year ever since. And I use it for some of the same reasons. And apparently what happened was uh, the professor broke the students up into groups of four or five or six students, and they each had a research project for the year. And theirs was to uh, one group had a more interesting project than all the others. And theirs was to uh, figure out how could how could they improve the jury deliberation uh, process in the local uh, judicial system. And so they, so basically they're working for the local judge to do this research project. So they go do all the things that you would have done, right? They would have, uh, they interviewed prosecuting attorneys and defense attorneys and all the other judges in the jurisdiction. And they asked all the same kind of questions you probably would have asked. They, you know, what was the trial about and how long did it last? And uh, what kind of, they even asked them, how late did you, uh, did they make you work into the evening and what kind of food did they feed you and stuff like that. And what, what they concluded at the end of the semester was that none of those things mattered. It turns out the only thing that mattered was the shape of the table in the jury room. So it turned out that, that yeah, which just sounds crazy, but it, the, it turns out that jury rooms that had rectangular tables, whoever sat at the head of the table, even if it wasn't the jury foreman, tended to dominate the conversation. And, and therefore, uh, they thought a less than robust and egalitarian debate of the facts ensued. And so maybe a less than fair verdict was rendered. But in jury rooms that had round tables, they felt like it was a more fair and egalitarian debate of the facts and probably a, a more fair and accurate verdict was rendered. So, of course, they make their big recommendation of the, the head judge. Head judge is very excited. He issues a decree in all the courthouses in my jurisdiction. 
anywhere we've got any of those round tables, get rid of them. Wow. All right. Crazy. So I didn't just misspeak, like exactly the opposite of what they said. Get rid of the round tables and put in rectangular ones. Are you with me on this? Yeah. Okay. So these students are mortified, right? Like why on earth would this judge put in these rectangular tables that's going to lead to less fair verdicts? So let me ask you, what, why do you think that would be? I'm, I'm totally racking my brain. And, you know, was he, was he saying that having a leader would speed up the process and, and, and there would be less, uh, less, um, what's it called? Deadlock? Yes, that is exactly mm. the case. The judge's definition of an improved jury deliberation process wasn't a more fair or accurate one. It was a faster one. He mm. wanted to reduce the backlog on his court docket. Now, now imagine those five or six young 20-something college students who just found this out, right? Like I said, they were mortified, right? They were angry at him. They were angry at themselves. You know, they thought they were going to make the world a better place by, you know, doing this research project. But instead, in their mind, they'd made it a worse place. And so the, the, the point of the story is, is that it's very important to be clear on your objectives before you start your research project not after. Mm. If you wait till mm. after, you may be sorely disappointed in the result, right? And so, uh, so Jason shares that, and I've gotten the opportunity to share that story a number of times with new hires in consumer research to teach them that lesson. Now, I could just stand up there and tell them, well, you know, my experience in 20 years tells me you should get very clear on your objectives before you start your project, right? But that's going to go in one ear and out the other. But that story does a much better job of convincing them of that lesson in a way that they're likely to remember it every time they start a project. Wow. Now I'm curious, you know, you just told somebody else's story and, mm -hmm. and I'm, you know, I can't help but think that is it more important to tell your own or is it okay to pull in other people's experiences and other people's stories if it, if it's gonna, you know, get, get your point across? Yeah. A great question. So, so I'll answer it with a question. What would you think of somebody who every story they told was about themselves? I think they're a, a bit egotistical. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. So there's the answer is, yes, you can tell your own stories, um, and you should, but you should have other people's stories to tell as well. A and I'll go further, of the stories that are about you that you tell, some of them should not be how great I am stories. <laughs> they should be stories of your mistakes and your failures. You right. know, because who, that's the kind of boss that most people want to work for, right? The, the kind of boss that shares their own failures, even though it's embarrassing, because they want you to benefit from the learning from it. And they're not afraid to share their own failures and be embarrassed because your growth and development is more important to them. That's the kind of boss most of us want to work for, right? And it makes you more human, makes you, it makes you uh, fallible. It does. But you should be collecting stories from other people like I just did. I shared somebody else's story and I, I didn't take credit for it. I, I told you whose story it was. And, um, and it, it works almost as well as if it's your own story. But if you, if you restrict your database of stories to your own stories, uh, you're just going to have a much smaller database. And it's much better to have a large repertoire of stories that you can draw on when you need them. The reason I asked the question was uh, I had a situation, uh, I guess it was probably last week, where I was trying to have a conversation with a client about our costs in our business and, and you know, advertising design, we're constantly being scrutinized for our costs. And, and in the case of, of um, something that the client thought was a very simple job, you know, had a certain price tag to it that they just couldn't get their head around. And anyway, I told the story of Pablo Picasso sitting in a cafe and a woman walked up to him and said, are you Pablo Picasso? He says, yeah, yes, I am. He says, she says, I'm a, I'm a massive fan of your work. I'm wondering if you can can you just draw me a little sketch 
on this napkin. And so he took the napkin and quickly drew a, a doodle on it and he handed it to her and he said, that'll be, that'll be $30,000. She says, that's, that's, that's crazy. You, you just, you just doodled it right in front of me. It just took you 30 seconds. He says, yes, but it took me 30 years to learn that. Yeah, exactly. And anyways, in the middle of me telling that, the client looks at me and goes, yeah, I've heard this story before. Yeah. And I just got totally shut down. I thought to myself, well, I wonder if I should be coming up with more unique mm. stories. Yeah, you probably should. And that's another reason yeah. to have a large repertoire of stories and to for them to be not – I mean, that's a story that's not about you and it's not about somebody you know personally, right? It's a story that got handed down because – and it's about a famous person, right? I mean, how many of us have heard all the stories about Steve Jobs and founding Apple and totally. about Jack Welch running GE? And uh, so – uh, in fact, one of the things I, I, I warn people about in the book is it's important who the hero of the story is or the main character in choosing mm -hmm. that person. And one of the types of people you don't want to choose is Superman, right? And the reason is because, and, and I would, Pablo Picasso or Jack Welch or Steve Jobs, they're all examples of Superman. They're like really super famous people. Um, and the reason is, well, one, that can happen, what just happened to you, <laughs> right? But, oh, I've already heard this story. But the second problem with that is, is that those stories tend to not help people do their jobs any better because just because Pablo Picasso can draw a great doodle in 30 seconds doesn't mean I can. And I'll never be able to doodle as well as Pablo Picasso. If I tell you a story about Superman, how Superman saved the day, you're like, okay, that's great for Superman, but I can't fly or bend steel bars with my hands or jump over a tall building with a single bound. So the fact that Superman saved the day won't help me do my job better. The, the, the hero or the main character in your stories should be somebody who's relatable to your audience, somebody your audience can relate to and see themselves in. I, I can't see myself in Pablo Picasso or Steve Jobs or Jack Welch. So I generally advise to avoid those type of stories and focus on stories that are either about you or somebody you know or somebody that your audience knows or, or at least somebody that's in a similar position to them because those are much more relatable stories. Mm, very cool. Um, you know, we have a lot of um, um, mothers and fathers that listen to this show, and, and I, I had to tell them that you've written a book called Parenting with a Story, mm -hmm. um, which was a book, but also you, had a, you have a podcast on that as well. Um, I wonder if you can give us a little overview on, on what Parenting with a Story is all about, because I love the idea of being able to, you know, teach your kids certain lessons using, using storytelling. Yeah. And so that was exactly was the idea behind the book. It actually came out of the, the first book as I was writing the stories for the lead with the story book uh, and sharing them with people. I had a lot of people comment, gosh, that, you know, I could probably use that story at home with my kids. And that it, after hearing that a dozen times, it finally occurred to me that there's a, there's a big similarity between leading people at work and parenting children at home. Like, you know, in both cases, you're in some ways the boss and get to tell them what to do, but you're also, you care about them and you, you care about their growth and development and you want to guide them. And so there's, there's just some similarities. And it occurred to me that, uh, it might be good to have a book just for parents to teach life lessons and, um, uh, values and character lessons to kid through stories, as opposed to just telling them, you know, you should be like this. And, uh, but, but I, I knew that I didn't have enough personal stories in my life to fill a book like that. And, and so I've got two or three stories. You know, I just, I shared one with you earlier about my dad, you know, that's that in fact, that's one of the stories from the book. Um, but you've got two or three stories and everybody else in life that's has reached, you know, at some age in their life has probably got two or three really, really compelling life stories 
that would teach somebody a great lesson. So I ended up interviewing a hundred people around the world in probably 25 different countries to find their most meaningful moments of clarity in their life where they learned uh, a really great life lesson, probably the hard way, um, and just documented that in the book. So literally it's just a collection of short stories as opposed to lead with a story and sell with a story, which are mostly how-to books. This one is just a collection of 101 short stories to teach character lessons on ambition and open-mindedness and creativity and integrity and hard work and perseverance and kindness and patience and humility. And, and you know, like there's 23 chapters on, you know, if you were to write down the 23 most important character traits you want you and your kids to have, you'd probably hit most of these. And so it's really four or five really powerful story, true stories from somebody somewhere in the world that you don't know. So it's not going to be the Pablo Picasso one that you've heard already because they're all original. Um, and when you notice your kids struggling with self-confidence or uh, self-reliance or courage or, or fairness or kindness or patience, all those things I mentioned, look up that chapter and there'll be four or five great stories that you can share with them that will help teach them that lesson. And I think it's great because it, it, it imparts wisdom and helps kids steer certain choices in their lives. And, you know, got me thinking, what is it about those sort of seminal choice making decision moments in our lives where a story really comes in handy? Uh, it probably goes back to the same, you know, why do stories work? You know, the, the, because they're, uh, they're processed kind of in the emotional centers of the brain. They're, they're a lot more memorable too. I mean, there've been a number of studies that show that, that facts are 20, six to 22 times more likely to be remembered if they're embedded in a story than if they're just given to people in a list, right? And so like, you know, for example, if I, if I were to give you a list of three or four or five reasons why storytelling works right now, and I've already given you two, the mm. truth is tomorrow or next week, you won't remember that list of four or five things, right? And you know, you won't remember it, but you will remember the story of the jury tables, right? Uh, and, and you know that, you know that a, a month from now, you'll be able to tell that story uh, just about as well as I did and get most of the facts right. In fact, even a year from now, you probably will. And anybody listening to this will probably be able to tell that story and get most of the facts right. But but none of you would remember this list of two or three reasons right now. So that's just, that's one of the real powers of storytelling. And that's, and, and it's important to remember them and not just know, oh, there's a story in a database somewhere or, or in an email or in a book that I read. I'll go look that up. You need to remember the uh, enough of it to make a decision in the moment. Uh, like when your kid is facing that tough decision at school, you know, whether to fight the bully or run away or to buy the drugs or not buy the drugs or, you know, th those important life lessons that we, we need them to act on them at that moment. You need it to be top of mind. And a story keeps those kind of uh, lessons top of mind. Hmm. Very cool. Um, and we absolutely want to talk about your brand new book and it's, it's called Sell with a Story. Um, and it, it's essentially how, how to capture attention, build trust and close the sale. Um, you know, bit of a weird jump from you know parenting to 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 sales, but I think it's such an important book because uh, we all use we use sales in all aspects of our lives, whether it's in business or or not. Mm -hmm. um, what is the advantage uh, to, to using storytelling uh, in, in the sales process? Yeah, and again, some of the same things is that the the buyers that are making those decisions, they're going to remember the you know the the, the main parts of your sales pitch better if it's if it's in uh, embedded in a story. They're going to uh, it's it's more compelling. It's going to help them make a decision better. So for all the of the the same reasons, it's effective. But uh, the, the kind of the main point there is that uh, sales stories a sales story is not the same thing as a sales pitch, mm -hmm. right? A sales pitch is. You know, Roger, there are three reasons why you need to buy my latest book, right? Here's number one, number two, number three, right? That's a sales pitch. 
uh, a sales story is something very different. It, it, it's a story that gets you, gets you to want to and and believe that you need to have the thing that the somebody is selling. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example uh, that happened to me personally. Uh, my wife and I were at um, an art show last summer, and she was looking for a picture for our kids' bathroom at home. And she, we got to this one booth of this underwater photographer, this guy named Chris Guggen. He just does these mesmerizing pictures of sea anemones and coral reefs and sea turtles and all this underwater stuff. And she looks through his pictures and she just gets emotionally attached to this one picture that to me looked about as out of place as a pig in the ocean. <laughs> and, and that's because, Roger, it was literally a picture of a pig swimming in the ocean. No way. Yeah. And I just thought that was the weirdest thing. And so when I finally got to ask the guy, because he's right there, and I finally said, look, uh, so Chris, <laughs> what's with the pig in the ocean, man? And What he drugs said, were you on? Exactly. And that's when the magic started. He said, oh yeah, it was the craziest thing. He said, that picture was taken off the, off the, right off the beach of this uninhabited island in the Bahamas called Big Major K. And he said, apparently what happened was um, a, a few years uh, prior to that, some local entrepreneur decided to raise a pig farm for bacon, I guess. And, and he bought all these pigs and he, and he found this uninhabited island where he could keep them. So he throws them out there and waits for them to grow up. And, and he said, but if you look in the picture, look at up off the beach behind the pig, can you see what's growing up there uh, on the island? And I kind of squinted and looked at it and said, well, the only thing I recognize up there are cactus. And he said, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> pigs don't like cactus. And he said, so they literally, they weren't eating, they weren't thriving and said the good news was apparently uh, a local restaurant owner on a neighboring island was boating his kitchen refuse over to Big Major K and dumping it a few dozen yards offshore, right? Every night. And so eventually these hungry little pigs get get hungry enough that, and brave enough that they start wading out into the water to get to this food. Well, it's first one pig and then two pigs and then three pigs and now it's three generations later and all the pigs have learned to swim because that's the only way that they can reliably eat. And he said, it just made it so easy to take this picture because normally I've got to get on my scuba equipment and it's, you know, it takes hours to get under the water. And he said, but I went there and the pigs swam up to my boat before I even got out because they think I'm the guy with the, from the restaurant with the food, right? And so I just stuck my camera out of the water and snapped the pictures. Easiest picture I ever took. You know, so of course at that point I got my credit card out and I'm like, we'll take it. <laughs> and why? Because two minutes ago, it was just a stupid picture of a pig right. in the ocean. But now it was a story, an interesting mm -hmm. story that explains why pigs can swim in, in Big Major K. And by the way, they call it Pig Island now. They, nobody, nobody even calls it Big Major K. And it was, a, it was a history lesson and a geography lesson and an animal psychology lesson kind of all rolled into one. And, and plus, I love telling the story. And people come to my house and go to the bathroom. I can tell them about the pig, you know. So <laughs> literally, stories can add value to the thing that you're selling and make it a more valuable thing. So that's a sales story, not a sales pitch. Mm. But it's Love just that. one, by the way. It's, it's one of 25 different types of stories. I, I, I interviewed um, salespeople and procurement people at, at, at 50 companies around the world, like Microsoft and Costco and Abercrombie and Fitch and Cushman and Wakefield and you know, a bunch of companies and, and trying to find out when storytelling is happening in the entire sales process. And, and it turns out it, it's happening all the way from when you meet the buyer to the uh, building rapport, to the actual sales pitch, to closing the sale, to service after the sale, and even negotiating price somewhere in the middle. And anyway, I found 25 different types of stories that salespeople are telling, and that's one of them. So like that's number 16. That's a value adding story, but there's all kinds of other ones. One of the things that jumped out to, uh, out to me was, you know, you can use storytelling to bring data to life. And I find, you know, with 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 so much data in our world these days and, and data being 
being so, you know, so valuable and, and, and able to help us uh, in all sorts of different ways. We're having to explain the data, but most people just kind of barf it out and, and right. leave it on the table for the client to, you know, kind of deal with it themselves or they'll kind of point to it and say, see, you know, it's going up, yeah. this is a good thing or it's, or it's down, right. this is a bad thing. How can you use storytelling to uh, bring data to life? Yeah. So one of my favorite kinds of stories for data, I call um, a discovery journey story. And it's basically you are telling the story of the analysis that you went through. Okay. So, uh, and so it starts with, well, so this is the problem I was trying to research. So I went and pulled this data and well, that didn't help me very much. And then I went and pulled this data and that didn't help. And then I found this and I did this analysis with it. And then I found this and then you stop right as you're telling this you know, journey of discovery, your own journey of discovery, doing this analysis uh, right before you have your big aha moment and share that data or analysis with the audience and let them decide how would they conclude from this? And Mm. what that does is it turns your idea into their idea, right? Because, and you know that people are much more passionate about pursuing their own ideas than they are about pursuing your ideas. So what you want in these presentations is for them to adopt your idea as if it was their own. But there's no way to do that when you say, when you start out your presentation, here's my idea and here's the reason why it's my idea. Well, okay, now it's your idea and you're trying to convince me of it. But if instead you take them on your journey of discovery through a story until you got to the moment that you had your brilliant idea and let them have that brilliant idea at that moment, now it's their idea. Legitimately, it's their idea. And they're going to feel that in their gut and they're going to want to pursue it with reckless abandon, right? So, so that's how, that's one way. There are other ways I lay out in the book, but that's one way to use storytelling to get your audience to, to draw your own conclusion for themselves instead of you forcing it down their throat. Love that. Uh, you know, Paul, we're, we, you know, really, really appreciate uh, this conversation. We're going to have to start wrapping it up. But before we, before we wrap it up, we always like to ask some sort of uh, fun rapid fire questions. And I'm wondering if you'd be up for that. <laughs> okay. Give it a shot. All right. All right. Don't worry. They're, they're nothing too bad. All right. Um, first off, what is your favorite part about being a man? Oh, being a father, hands down. I got two boys, awesome. 16 and 11, and absolutely uh, wouldn't trade it for the world. And they have a, they have a pig picture in their bathroom. They do. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> uh, what is your biggest challenge about being a man? Uh, being a father. <laughs> Same answer. <laughs> yeah. Especially now that I've got one that's 16 years old. And of course, uh, you know, nothing I say and do is right anymore. And uh, that's, right. that's my big challenge right now. Uh, I can imagine. Um, who is, in your opinion, the most influential person of all time? Uh, well, to me personally, uh, I'm going to give you the same answer three times. My father, Mm. my father, he's the one that told me that story that got me to quit my job. Right. And, and do this for a living. Um, if, if you read my parenting, the storybook, the opening story is another story about my dad that really just radically changed how I think about dealing with peer pressure as a, as a kid. Uh, yeah. So I think that's got to me, that's got to be my answer. Awesome. And what is the most underrated trait for modern day success? Storytelling. There, I, I, I can't, <laughs> there's answer. no way I can tell you any other answer, answer than that. Right. <laughs> so yeah. what is, what is one thing that somebody should experience at least once? Ooh, skydiving. I did that one time and I would never do it again, but I'm so <laughs> glad that I did it that one time. Uh, awesome. Absolutely thrilling. Awesome. Uh, if you were to take one book on a desert Island, what would that be? Ooh, um, you know, I might self-serving, but I have to be my parenting with a storybook because it's got uh, stories, some of, about my kids, but other people's kids. And uh, I think it would keep me company. Awesome. Um, finally, what do you want your lasting legacy to be? Uh, 
Yeah. Um, I think it would, it sounds corny, but I, my mission in life now is to make the world a better place one story at a time. And that's what I try and do on my weekly podcast and in my books, so, you know, read one story at a time, let it sink in, do its work and leave the world a better place as a result of that. So that, that's what I hope to achieve. Awesome. So if everyone wanted to uh, listen to your podcast, read your books, learn more about you, reach out to you, what's the, what's the best way that they can do that? Yeah, probably my website. It's kind of got all that stuff in one place. So that's uh, leadwithastory.com. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much, Paul. This was amazing. Guys, go out and uh, pick up the book, Sell with a Story, parent with, parent with a, Parenting with a Story, right. or lead with, uh, lead with a Story. Uh, three incredible books that are incredibly valuable to you. Um, Paul, thank you so much for joining us on the Man Talks podcast. Guys out there, if you want to learn more about Man Talks, you can go to mantalks.com for more podcasts, blog posts, lots of amazing new articles up there, and information on all of our events. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you download your podcast so that you never miss an episode. And of course, please leave us a rating. It goes a long way to make sure that the, uh, the podcast gets into as many ears as possible. Thank you so much for joining us on the Man Talks podcast. Catch us next week for another interview as we build better men through conversation, connection, and community together. 